Thanks for joining us again for the Bible Study Magazine podcast. We get to talk today to the author of a really cool new New Testament commentary, just now being released by Lexham Press. And Washington State just passed a law limiting the length of podcast introductions when the presenter doesn't really have anything to say more than all that. So here we go. It's really wonderful to have on the Bible Study Magazine podcast today, Dr. Matthew Harmon, who's written a new commentary that is so new, I can't even hold it up for you. I don't even have a physical copy here in the Lexham offices, even though it's a Lexham academic title. So I want to jump right in here by asking you, Dr. Harmon, to go ahead and tell us, how do you serve Christ's body? Yes, so I am a professor of New Testament studies at Grace College and Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. I've been here since 2006. I am an active member of my local church, Christ Covenant Church. I serve on the preaching team. I uh, have led small groups throughout my time here at Christ Covenant Church, and I'm a regular teacher in our adult life education uh, programs. That reminds me of, I was just listening to Jonathan Pennington give some talk on the Sermon on the Mount, and I've used his commentary, the the one, the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it he showed in that talk that his work was really deeply flavored by and enriched by his use of this material in the local church, which makes me just curious to know, did you use any of the material or sort of test it in your own local church, the the material that you wrote for this new Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary volume on Galatians. Yes, uh, I taught through the book of Galatians in our adult life education programs twice during the time I was writing this commentary, and that gave me a great opportunity to engage the text as well as uh, hear from Ordinary believers in the pews who have real-life questions about how the text applies to their everyday life as a follower of Jesus. And those questions always sharpen my, uh, my understanding of the text and how it applies to our everyday lives. I didn't warn you that I was going to ask this question because I did not know until just this moment, but now you're making me really curious. Can you remember an insight that arose from something somebody said in class or maybe just a question that somebody raised that, wow, you hadn't thought of and it actually got incorporated into the commentary? That's a great question. Um, I'm hard-pressed to come up with a specific off the top of my head. I, I do know that when I have taught it both times in my local church, that the uh, section on the the battle between the flesh and the spirit in Galatians 5 is always one of the most uh, thought-provoking and engaging discussions that we end up having because of its very real-life uh, practical application of what does it look like to walk in the spirit, what does it look like to fight against the desires of the flesh, and what are some ways we can see specific evidence of of the fruit of the Spirit in our everyday lives. Yeah, that's absolutely what I would expect. I mean, there there are some more academic discussions that may or may not be of interest to any given group in church, but Mm -hmm. any group of true Christians is going to be interested in, is it 517, I want to say, the the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit Mm -hmm. against the flesh. 
Okay, now this third season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is all about biblical theology. And I've been asking every single guest that I have, many names that you would know, others who've written commentaries for us at Lexham or who've done other great work on Paul or on the whole Old Testament like Stephen Dempster. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've asked them all, what is biblical theology? Now you tell us, Dr. Harmon. Well, from my perspective, I think biblical theology can be approached from a couple different angles. At one level, biblical theology is interested in tracing the development of key themes, ideas throughout the biblical storyline. So I would put together those two elements of key themes that that run throughout the canon, as well as tracing the overall story from Genesis to Revelation as the as the meta narrative of what God is doing. And within that, you can then focus on specific books of the Bible and highlight what key themes are present in that book and how do they relate to the other uh, texts of Scripture that deal with those key themes and ideas. Yeah, you're you're already anticipating the next question that I had for you, so let's just jump right to it. How is your new commentary in the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary Series, how is it biblical theology? That, that is, how does a biblical theology commentary differ from the many other kinds of commentaries that I've got filling my Logos library? Well, anytime you write a commentary, you have to make choices about what sort of things you're going to focus on, because you can't write one commentary that addresses every possible line of inquiry that you could pursue in the biblical text. So this series, one of the reasons I was attracted to it was the focus on biblical theology, and that really works itself out in two primary ways in the in the commentary itself. The first is that there is a dedicated section at the end of the commentary, about a hundred pages, where I summarize essentially nine key biblical theology themes and explain how they show up in Galatians, but then try to explain how they fit in the larger testimony of Scripture across the canon and throughout the storyline of the Bible. So that when you look at, for example, uh, Paul talking about Jesus as the seed of Abraham, the promised offspring of Abraham, well, in order to really understand what that means, you have to have a general sense of how does Abraham fit in the biblical story. So that section is intended to give that longer explanation so that in the body of the commentary itself, I can give just a couple of quick sentences about it and then refer the reader to the discussion in the themes and the thematic section so that I'm not having to repeat a lot of discussions at various points in the commentary. I can give a quick summary and then point people to the longer discussion of it in the biblical theology section of the commentary. Yeah, this is the structure of all of the EBTC volumes, and I found it to be very helpful. Um, It's efficient in a way. You don't have to repeat all those theological discussions every time the theme Mm -hmm. comes up. You can point them to it from the exegesis section. But anybody out there in YouTube or audio podcast land who ends up buying one of these commentaries, hopefully Harmon on Galatians, will want to make sure to understand that structure. Uh, Otherwise, you might end up flipping to a particular passage that you're wanting to cover and ending up getting an incomplete meal. You know, you're getting the exegesis that 
it's probably similar to what you can get elsewhere. Uh, hopefully there are advances. There are places where you helpfully disagree with others and, you know, mm-hmm. build on the work of others, but you won't understand and get the real purpose of the commentary unless you're flipping regularly back to that back section. Now, I, um, Dr. Harmon, I'm going to have Brian Rosner, who is, as you know, a major uh, evangelical biblical theologian on the podcast soon, Lord willing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He knows what he's talking about. You and I both know that. I've been reading uh, one of his books just recently in prep for that. He wrote a blurb for your commentary that goes like this. Whereas most New Testament commentaries miss the theological wood for the exegetical trees, Harmon's Galatians commentary keeps both firmly in view. Now, we both know, and I think we've both written blurbs, that blurbs tend to speak a little evangelistically, but this is still really something. You know, most New Testament commentaries miss the forest due to excessive focus on the trees. Do you, do you agree with your own book's blurb? And if you do, what negative effects has the missing of the wood had on Christian Bible study? Well, I... I hope that's true. That was the commentary I was trying to write when it came to uh, having an eye to the details of the text, because ultimately, if you're going to paint the larger picture, if you're going to describe the forest properly, you do still need to pay attention to the details of the trees that make the forest up. So I I think it can be challenging to do both of those in a commentary. So I've tried to do that in terms of highlighting the key details in the text that best contribute to our understanding of the larger forest that we're looking at. And sometimes that can be a grammatical point. Sometimes that can be a specific theological point. And so I've tried to bring those two things together because I want people to use this commentary in a way that helps them both answer specific questions as they come to the text of, oh, I wonder how I'm supposed to understand that phrase. Well, at the same time, I want them to walk away from looking at, at, at a passage in my commentary and have a good sense of this is the big picture argument that Paul is making in this section. And here are how the pieces of that fit together to serve that larger point that Paul is trying to make. Yeah, you know, interviewers can't promise to have read every single word of every book that, you know, they they interview about. And I didn't, right? But I just went right for those uh, portions that interested me, you know, what else would I do? And I saw that kind of connection that you were making. And the the structure of the commentary with the biblical theological themes at the end, you know, makes that natural, makes the, the sort of yes. hermeneutical spiral between the tight, you know, looking at a twig view and mm-hmm. the big hot air balloon view of looking at a big theme. Um, and you do- And I would say, and, I, w- I would just say along the way, I, I have tried to put footnote references to discussions in that biblical theology section so that so that the reader if they're if they're tracking that they can say oh he does have a much longer section on justification in the biblical theology section he doesn't just deal with it in three sentences here how can he just deal with it in three sentences like it's such a major theme well that's what the biblical theology section is for to give that more extended discussion so that it's um, not cluttering up the commentary potentially, but still integrated with the verse-by-verse exposition of the text. Yeah, I was actually just talking to my father, who's a communications professor, up now for Thanksgiving. Uh, Now people will know when we're recording this. And uh, he has gotten into New Testament studies sort of from his angle. 
And one thing that he's found particularly interesting that I don't know had really uh, been a part of his own personal Bible study, you know, heretofore, is checking out what are the distinctive contributions of any given New Testament author or any given New Testament book. And you list nine biblical theological themes from Galatians in the latter half of your commentary. Salvation history, God, the servant servant of the Lord, seed, the law, justification and righteousness, humanity, faith, and Paul's use of the Old Testament. And I've had other authors of EBTC volumes on the podcast because I think the series is such a great idea. And I'm so glad my own Lexham Press picked it up from B&H and decided to continue it. And I found myself just wanting to ask several of these authors, and now you, how it is that they would actually use the biblical theological stuff in the back if say you were preaching on this book, Galatians, or leading a Bible study on it. I mean, would you structure a teaching series the, the same way the book is, exegesis first, then theology, or would you weave in the theology as you go? How would you use your own commentary? Well, I think you could do it multiple ways. My first inclination would be to do it as a teaching sort of sequentially through the book and then drawing upon those uh, sections as we get to the relevant texts in Galatians to try to inform our uh, our discussion or whether you're preaching or whether you're leading a Bible study or wh- whatever format that takes. So I would probably use it first and foremost in that way as a supplement to when you're working sequentially through the text to fill in some of those additional, uh, some of the additional richness of the text that's maybe not as immediately apparent just from a surface level reading. But I also think you could do a thematic study or a thematic series through Galatians using those uh, different areas that I discuss. And and, and many of them have subcategories underneath them, as you know, from looking at it. So it's not even just like, um, you know, salvation history. Well, there's multiple subsections in there that you could dive into a little bit more deeply, or there's a section on the Holy Spirit, you know, so the, there are different areas where you could go a little bit deeper into some of the, even those larger headings themselves. You you make me ask a question that once again, I, you know, you said you were hard pressed with that other question to come up with a specific example, and that's a bad <laughs> interviewer who makes the interviewees be hard pressed on something. I know not to do that, but here I go again. Um, I'm standing in the offices of Lexham Press. I'm talking to the author of a very careful commentary that is using all of the exegetical tools that were placed in my own tool belt in seminary. Um, and doing it in a really, I think, artful and helpful way, not separating the exegesis from the theology, but sort of showing them in stages, you know, relating them all the time. And to me, from my vantage point, like, it's actually, in a way, like, just kind of easy to get preaching right uh, and, and Bible study in general, if you just are aware of some of the tools. Nonetheless, over the years, we've all heard some sermons from well-meaning preachers who end up saying what the text just doesn't say. I just had this experience. I will not say where. I was in another city, and uh, I was actually checking my Logos library while the guy was preaching because I once I realized where he was going with this text, I just thought, 
he is totally divorced from authorial intent, whether of the human author or the divine author. You know, sometimes you can see, a, you know, a census plenior. There's a there's a there's more that the New Testament reveals, say, about where an Old Testament passage was going. He wasn't doing that. He was just mm-hmm. saying what he wanted to say, and it really, really grieved me. And I was talking with my good father, as I often want to do, and he and his experience felt like that's still pretty widespread. And I wanted to say, in my world, it's not. And I just wanted to ask you, in your own world, you're a seminary professor, but surely you get out to churches. Do you have a positive feeling about the the way preachers out there are using all the materials like that you yourself are writing? Or do you still think we have a long, long way to go? I think it can be very hit or miss. I, I, I find myself in churches where I think this is a great example of faithful expositional preaching that's rooted in a study of the languages and rooted in careful understanding of the immediate literary context, the historical cultural context, and ultimately the canonical and biblical theological context. And so when I hear those kinds of messages, it is such an encouragement to my own spiritual life. Amen. And I want to I want to try to affirm when I when I visit churches and I have opportunities to talk with pastors to be able to encourage them in the midst of, of that kind of preaching ministry. I, I think a lot of it comes down to, unfortunately, um, maybe the kind of training that pastors have or have not received as they were preparing for ministry. And I think if Pastors have been given good training when it comes to how to use exegetical tools, how to use the languages, and given a good framework for thinking about how to preach and how to put that all together, then they tend to be very faithful preachers of God's Word. When you have people who have not had that kind of training or had a different version of training, then you can often find yourself in those situations where it beca- the, the sermon becomes a platform for whatever that preacher wants to say, whatever their hobby horse is, whatever their, um, whatever, whatever their interests are. And one of the dangers of that over time ends up being a lot of repetitive preaching, that you end up coming back to the same kinds of uh, ideas or texts hobby over time, horses. right, rather than a commitment to we're going to try to do our best to give a representative sample of the whole counsel of God through our preaching and teaching ministry over the course of, you know, a period of of a pastor's ministry in a church. Yeah, I mean, let that be a call to everyone who's listening to the podcast, whether you are a pastor or just a Bible student who is leading your own family through family devotions, whether you're hit or miss, kind of like my family is, we just don't do it every single night, or you're really regular every time you lead them through a passage, these ought to be the thoughts that you're asking yourself. What does this passage say? I have to tell a little story. There was a guy on campus I went to school with who was just a big man on campus and super good looking and like had the you know most attractive girlfriend on campus. And I just assumed he was arrogant. I never talked to him. And then we both went through seminary without knowing one another. And then he came back while I was actually still in the PhD program and uh, preached in chapel. And I was kind of expecting him to be flashy because he was just so cool. I just thought of him as so cool. But he preached the most 
humble sermon because he did exactly what they taught him in seminary to do. And it wasn't flashy, but it was so such a bomb to my soul that he was just going to give me the word. And I'm encouraging people out there, you get a tool like this Galatians commentary, and you're going to be guided in how to do that. You're, you want to understand what is the exegesis portion? What is the biblical theology portion? You you get there, you can give such riches to your people. Okay, that's off my soapbox. Let's get back to your, your commentary. Um, I went right to the works of the law section, and I wasn't surprised to see you call it the most controversial expression in the book, you know, the works of the law. Mm-hmm. And your discussion of that word, I did find really helpful in your biblical theology section. But I want you to explain to listeners, how does biblical theology help you understand what, in fact, are the works of the law in Galatians? I think that when it comes to understanding that phrase within biblical theology, Galatians itself points in this direction, which is, I think, why it's it's helpful to, to take this approach, is within Galatians itself, in chapter 3, Paul makes a contrast between how the law operates on the principle of doing and the gospel operates on the principle of believing and trusting. And I think that what Paul does eventually is he looks back, and I think this is really evident even in chapter 4 in one of the most difficult passages in Galatians on the so-called Hagar-Sarah allegory, but Paul looks at at that passage of scripture in Genesis, and he sees these principles of there is a principle at work that the flesh is connect, our sinful flesh is connected with the idea of doing in order to earn or gain God's favor, and that it's in contrast to trusting in what God has promised to do and will do. And I think that framework helps us understand that when Paul critiques the works of the law, he might have specific forms of the works of the law in view because that those were some of the sort of flashpoints, things like circumcision, food laws, even calendar observances. But those are rooted in a larger discussion of ultimately how do we relate to God? Is it on the basis of doing or is it on the basis of trusting and receiving? And I think that larger context helps us to, uh, to push past some of, the, um, some of the debate that can get so caught up in, well, does it refer to just these specific works of the law? Does it refer to the totality of the law? And it gets to, I think, the heart of Paul's critique against that issue, that it's not surface level of, well, these just separate Jews and Gentiles. That's true. Those, those, those works of the law specifically did have the function of separating Jew and Gentile, but it goes much deeper than that. Paul's critique of works of the law goes much more fundamentally to how is one made right with God? Is it based on trusting in God's promises or is it rooted in our performance of his law? So I'm going to try to reflect back to you what you just said and toss in a label or two, and you just tell me if I'm reading you correctly. I think what you're saying is that the new perspective on Paul, as it's called, although it's now about as old as I am, maybe a little bit older, (laughs) had something valuable to tell us. It was telling us, okay, let's be careful to make sure that when we look at the Jewish groups of the first century, we're not making them monolithic. Mm -hmm. And let's acknowledge now, I think, 
evangelicals of your slash my stripe are saying, yeah, it was helpful for them to point out that here were the specific works of the law that were really catching up so many of the Jews of that day. But it does go back down to what Martin Luther saw, right, in his own Galatians commentary, in his own Romans work, that um, these are the methods by which the Jews of the first century were trying to earn favor with God. So you're both pushing back against the new perspective and trying to incorporate the value that it brought to New Testament studies. Yes? That's a that's a very fair summary. I think that traditionally speaking, um, the the sort of horizontal implications of the gospels when it when it comes to justification by faith and works of the law were not always given as much emphasis as the text itself gives them. And so the new perspective has come along and said, well, notice when Paul talks about justification, he's usually talking about it in the context of Jew and Gentile relating to one another within the people of God. And that's true. But the mistake, in my view, that the new perspective makes is to to largely kind of stop there and just say, it's primarily a horizontal issue, this justification by faith, works of the law. It's more of a horizontal rather than a vertical. And I want to say it's both, but it's primarily still vertical. How I think the question still stands of, how can I, as a sinful human being, be put in a right relationship with God? And that is the most foundational question. And from that flows the horizontal how should I relate to other people, whether they are different from me ethnically, whether they are a different gender than me, or whether they are different socioeconomic status? How does that work within the body of Christ? And once you have that vertical relationship with God established on the same basis, regardless of those categories, then you can discuss, well, if God accepts us on the same basis, then there should be no basis for us to exclude one another or to treat one another poorly or to think more highly of ourselves than we ought because we were all accepted by God on the same basis. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Now, I'm going to ask you a a touchy question. I'm going to put you on the spot again, but this time I let you know in advance. Um, I do want to ask you to be specific, but probably without naming names. In Galatians 2, 4 to 5, Paul says that, quote, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Who were these false brothers? So that's the first century context. And what might be some contemporary parallels or analogs to these false brothers? Well, this is where um, I, I think we need to. I'll give my caveat up front. Um, we don't have as much information as we might like, so I think any conclusion has to be given a sort of uh, best guess, tentative sort of status. So, having said that, um, it seems to me that these are individuals who, although they claim some sort of allegiance to Jesus, are still committed to this idea of relating to God on the basis of their observance of the law. And when Paul is in Jerusalem, I think these individuals 
managed to get a seat at the table as these conversations were taking place. And as a result, they pushed very hard, and I think this is reflected at points in the book of Acts, for the view that if you're going to be right with God, you have to have Jesus plus observing the law. And when it comes to that, I think when you understand that that was their basic approach, I think that provides us a nice transition into our contemporary context to think about what what are the sort of the things that we put on the plus when we say, well, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to trust in Jesus plus, and then you fill in the blank with whatever um, whatever the plus is. And I, I like to tell my students regularly, when you when you add, when you try to add to Jesus, you're actually subtracting from him because you're right. saying he's not enough. You're saying he's insufficient to accomplish your right standing with God and anything else that you need. So that that sounds like such a subtle thing, but anytime you try to add on to the finished work of Jesus, you're actually subtracting from it. Yeah, that that's a good deft answer without naming names but still giving people <laughs> the tools to take back to their church context, the, the context of whatever tradition or denomination they find themselves in. And and that does seem to be the, the human tendency. The gravity of the fall is pulling us down into adding accretions to the work mm-hmm. of Christ. And I I don't I think there was a time in my life when I thought, well I'm past that now. And now I recognize no, it, it is just a perennial temptation for me as for any Christian group. Now mm-hmm. I was just reading through Galatians just uh, yesterday, in fact, um, trying to think through, you know, what are some what are some things that have jumped out at me over time, and I I did some of my own academic work on Paul's religious affections, his emotional life, and my eye was drawn as I was just reading through Galatians again, you know, for the who knows what time. Uh, I saw a frustration in him, I think. Would it be right to call Paul frustrated with the Galatians? You know, he he starts right out with what I read as a pretty defensive line. You know, I didn't get my gospel from man, but from God. And he, he goes on to say he's astonished by their behavior. And he says, you know, famously, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Do you detect a note of frustration in Paul? Yes, I think he is. He I think he is frustrated. Now, he... The closest he comes to maybe saying it directly is in chapter four, he he uses an expression that's basically, I'm perplexed by you. So there's there's clearly a, a sense of 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 confusion, but also, you know, when you read those opening lines of Galatians and and when you compare it to the typical pattern of Paul's letters, you typically get he introduces himself. He introduces the recipients. He gives a sort of uh, wish or a prayer for grace and mercy. And then usually there's a Thanksgiving section where he talks about what sort of things he's thanking God for that he sees in the life of that congregation. And in Galatians, it's straight from the introduction to, I am astonished that yeah. you're depart- departing from the gospel. Yeah. So I, I think there has to be some measure of frustration within that. And I think that from other clues, it seems like Paul may not even have a full sense of the all the particulars of the situation there. I think at points he, he seems to indicate that maybe he's not entirely sure who these false teachers are, or even the totality of what they're doing. And I think there's just that frustration of 
He wants to be face to face to be able to help sort this out, but he can't be there. And so he's left with writing a, a sharply worded letter to try to communicate his frustration, his concern, but also, and this is one of those things that can be easily missed because it's language that we're just so accustomed to, he calls them brothers and sisters repeatedly Hmm. throughout the letter. And so it's like this consistent, I am so concerned about you, you're doing some dangerous things, brothers, sisters. Hmm. And so there's this this reassuring undercurrent there of, I still love you, I'm still for you, I'm committed to you, but these are really dangerous things that you're flirting with, and I need you to be clear on how dangerous they are. But it comes from a position of love and concern and affection, not condemnation and superiority. Yeah, this is part of the concern he has for all the churches that he mentions in another letter, this weight that's on him at all times. He's expressing it in Galatians. Now, you're, you're a New Testament scholar, Dr. Harmon. You've written a Galatians commentary now for, in my opinion, the best evangelical academic biblical studies press in all of Bellingham, Washington. <laughs> so why do you think that Paul as Peter said, wrote so many things that are hard to be understood, as the King James translates it. What, sure. what were Paul's purposes in this, and what were the Spirit's purposes? Well, I think some of the the difficulty of the things that Paul says simply stems from us being nearly 2,000 years removed from him. Now, of course, Peter was not. Peter was a colleague, essentially, of Paul, and even he is saying Paul writes some confusing things or some things that are they're difficult to understand, I think is the, the language he uses. And so I think part of that is because the 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 things that the Apostle Paul is writing about are are just they're deep, they're complex. And Paul himself is trying to help believers, oftentimes who don't have the same kind of biblical and theological grounding that he did. And he's trying to explain them in ways that are that flow out of that, but are still understandable even to an audience that may not have that kind of background. And anytime you try to communicate things in that kind of context, there's always the danger of being misunderstood or of, of there being gaps between what the author understands and is trying to communicate and what the reader is able to understand based on their background and experience. That's once again helpful. Yeah, it's it's been a spiritual question for me myself, even after amassing exegetical tools. Sometimes, like Luther, I'm beating on a text and saying, you know, <laughs> get the truth out to me. I want to know. And I'm frustrated that I mm-hmm. can't grasp it all. And I'm crying out to the Lord for illumination, which is why and I'm And I glad. think that's part of the purpose, though, isn't it? Don't you think? When, sure, when, yes. That, that God leaves those left, intentionally left those things in the text of Scripture to drive us to prayer, so that we don't just treat it treat the text of Scripture as this almost kind of formulaic experience where if right. I just translate the lang- translate the text properly and use my language tools and all these things, I'm going to automatically get the correct answer, and that takes out the relationship piece of it. That that ultimately. Right. God intends Scripture to be a relational interaction between himself and us. And when we try to perhaps 
focus so much on, well, I can't iron out every single detail of how to understand this. We sometimes can actually be out of step with God's larger purpose for Scripture. And there's another aspect of the relationality that is generated by the difficulties in Scripture. One of them, I just think of Ephesians 4, where Christ gives teachers to his church. Mm -hmm. And as I was getting into the world of academic biblical studies and trying to justify this to my upbringing, that is, I was part of a tradition that was pretty suspicious of uh, advanced education. It was Ephesians. It was Lloyd-Jones, actually, who put me onto this. Um, it was Ephesians 4 that made me think, no, okay, if I'm going to be a teacher of Christ's church, which is something he calls me to and not something I can make myself into, then that's a good thing. It doesn't mean everything I'm going to say is going to be right any more than I think you would claim that every single interpretation you have in your Galatians commentary is accurate. But still, overall, you are a gift to the church. And it is in relationship with teachers, whether my personal pastor or um, scholars that I never get a chance to meet. I'm just reading their books. That That is one means by which the Lord brings me to some clarity on some of these difficult passages. So let's end with one more difficult and, dare I say, controversial phrase and have you talk us through how you understand it, a, a phrase in Galatians. I, I read your discussion. I found it to be clear, concise, and persuasive. Galatians 2.16, it says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. There's that phrase we already talked about. Uh, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the other key phrase, and I read some more of the context, um, is the one that says we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ, or the classic King James I grew up on is more literal here, maybe a little bit, saying we are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ which mm -hmm. tends to leave the phrase ambiguous. Are we saved by Christ's faith or faithfulness or by faith in Christ? How do you understand this passage? And I'm going to give you 10 podcast bonus points if you can make biblical theology a part of your answer. <laughs> well, if I said earlier that works of the law was the most controversial phrase in Galatians, then this phrase we're now talking about is probably the second most controversial phrase in all of Galatians, for those who are familiar with uh, academic studies of, of Paul's letters. So I, I think that when it comes to understanding that phrase, part of what makes it challenging is you've got a combination of grammatical as well as theological issues that come together. And anytime you approach a phrase like this, your starting point, your assumptions are going to influence the way that you interpret it. I still think that in, in basic response to your question, one simple way of saying it is, the answer is both. We are saved by Christ's faithfulness, though I think that the language that Paul uses there in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, the specific wording, I don't think that's what he has in view. I think when Paul talks about that idea, he uses other ideas, other language to express Christ's obedience on our behalf. And I think that comes out in a text like Romans 5, where you have Paul talking about Christ's obedience in contrast to Adam's failure. And so there, Paul specifically roots it in a biblical theology of understanding how did Adam's failure necessitate Christ's obedience in order to make us right with God. But I think here in Galatians 2.16, 
I tend to default to the idea here that the phrase that comes after it is clarifying the more ambiguous phrase that comes before it. And so when Paul talks about we have believed in, and he uses that verb for believed in Jesus Christ, I think he is intentionally clarifying the potentially ambiguous phrase that comes before it. So in this whole discussion, I want to say I agree with you conceptually that yes, Christ's faithfulness to the Father in being perfectly obedient is foundational to our salvation. I just don't think that's what Paul's talking about in this particular text. And that can be challenging because there are other examples where we can where we, we go to a passage and we think, okay, someone might say, well, I think this passage means this. And you say, well, that's a biblical idea, but I don't think that's what this particular biblical author is saying in this particular text. So you can affirm your, your biblical theological sensibilities are good, but let's make sure they don't override the specific teaching of this particular text so we miss out on what, what Paul is actually saying. Yeah, I was just listening to a podcast by my great friend, Andrew Case, who does a Working for the Word podcast about Bible translation. He's a Bible translator. And he had on somebody, Nate something, and it's terrible, I've forgotten his name. I want to say Erickson, who uh, I think is a Southern Seminary grad and was evaluating the common idea that is out there in the Christian world, at least in America, that Greek is the perfectly precise language. And <laughs> and here's a great example of a place where it is less precise than English because it's that genitive construction, the faith yes. of Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean? You have to fill it in from context. There are a limited mm -hmm. number of options. It's not you know, infinitely uh, plastic, but yeah. you, you have to have an argument. You have to make an argument. And I, I think you did you did get your 10 podcast bonus points yes. redeemable right. for a free coffee here in <laughs> Bellingham if you ever visit I'll be there you happy go. to get you one uh yeah that is part of the appeal too you you've got to look at the whole sweep mm -hmm. of your theology and it's totally appropriate to do that because we believe the entire bible has been inspired by the lord and therefore yes. speaks the same truth but individual portions have their individual contributions as you have had to the commentary literature on Galatians, for which I thank you. And Dr. Harmon, thank you also for your time. Any parting word you'd have for our Bible Study Magazine podcast listeners? Well, I would just leave us with an encouragement to dive into the letter of Galatians. There is so much that God has for us in, that, in those six chapters that cover our understanding of how we relate to God, how we relate to others, the basics of the Christian life, as well as helping us to understand how the Bible fits together. It's so natural to look at Galatians and focus on, you know, these sort of big picture themes like justification. But if you read Galatians 3 and 4 in particular, you get a great primer on how do you read the Bible in tracking the unfolding story of God revealing his promises and fulfilling them and how they all culminate in the person of Christ. And so as someone who has spent years studying the book of Galatians, every time I dive back in, I see new things or things that I've not fully appreciated the significance of. And so I want to invite uh, your, uh, your listeners to take up the text, read it again, dive back in, and God has riches waiting for you to discover again. 
Excellent. We can end then with the words of Augustine, or actually some kid who stole, or some kid in the neighborhood was saying, tole lege, take up and read. Yes. And that is a great <laughs> way to end. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Harmon. Thank you. I find myself just grateful for living in the day in which we all live. We have so many great study resources to help us deepen our knowledge of and love for scripture. I'm embarrassed that I don't use them all as much as I feel I ought to. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You should definitely get Matthew S. Harmon's brand new commentary on Galatians in the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary series. You just heard the skill with which he looks at the forest of the Bible, the glade of Galatians, and the trees of individual disputed passages. You will get in Harmon a confident and experienced guide who can do the exegesis and then step it up to the first level of synthesis by doing biblical theology. This is good stuff. I'm Mark Ward, editor of Faith Life's Bible Study Magazine and host of its eponymous podcast. I also knew the word eponymous without having to look it up. Clearly, someone who knows that word can help you study the Bible with the best tools, as we like to say around here at BSM. Subscribe to Bible Study Magazine at biblestudymagazine.com slash subscribe. Get a great beginner package of Bible study tools at logos.com slash Bible study.